This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. It's found on page 403 of the Bibles there in your rows. If you like, turn there and follow along as I read. Nehemiah, chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattaiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Machijah, Hashum, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of seven months, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made the booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, 
And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done with all those names. Well done, Mike. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brian, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. My family will tell you uh, that I have a problem when it comes to books. I like to read them, uh, though I find there's never enough time to read. But my real problem is I like to buy them. Uh, specifically, I like to purchase inexpensive hardcover books on abooks.com. Uh, if you've not discovered that and you have the same problem as me, I apologize. I should have given you a warning. Abooks is an online clearinghouse for independent and used booksellers. Uh, so you can find hardcover books for like a couple bucks and free shipping. Uh, and it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, all the time books are showing up. Uh, I'm not getting a sponsorship fee from them or anything. It's not product placement. But if you share this compulsion, again, I should have uh, given you a warning. But my used book buying got so bad that one year my kids uh, held something of an intervention. And they told me I needed to give up book buying for Lent. And, and we don't even really do the giving up stuff for Lent thing. So it was kind of out of nowhere. I have way more books than I could, uh, than I have read, certainly, and probably more than I ever could read in my lifetime. But I, I heard a study from the National Endowment for the Arts that the number of books in a household is directly correlated to a child's level of education and income. So I'd say that my used book buying habit is, is an investment in the kids. That's my rationalization. But I do distinctly remember a couple of books in my life that struck me like a lightning bolt. When I was about 10, I was given the book Good Night, Mr. Tom by Michelle McGorry, and my cousin loved it, and so her folks, my aunt and uncle, gave it to me. It was the first time I ever remember being captivated by a story. It felt, it was this thick, hardback book. It felt really huge for me, like I had conquered something. It was a chapter book, and it had some content that was heavy. It was the first time I read something with some kind of mature content. And then when I was a youth pastor years ago, I realized that a bunch of my junior high boys were reading a series of books about a boy wizard. And it was like the fourth book had come out. And I was like, junior high boys are reading? I was like, I gotta figure out what this is about. So I dove into the Harry Potter series and I was hooked. I got hooked so much so that when the seventh book came out, I was there at midnight standing in line with all the kids from the youth group uh, getting the book. And I spent the whole next day sitting in my patio reading through the entire thing. And apparently I passed that compulsion on to our kids because when Mika, our oldest, was younger, I kept telling her to read the Harry Potter series. Read it. You'll like it. And she repeatedly, constantly rejected my suggestion. Eventually she caved. I can't recall why. Probably someone else suggested she read it instead. But she dove in and she devoured the books. And then she read the whole series again. And then she read it again. She wouldn't read anything else but Harry Potter. Her teacher actually made her stop reading at school because she couldn't do anything else. She wouldn't do anything else at school. During this time, I was coaching the girls' soccer team. And somehow Mika smuggled in a copy of Harry Potter. I don't even know where she had it. But within an instant of the final whistle being done, she was laying in the goal reading I mean, she have it hidden in her shorts? I don't even understand where. I don't know. But think about, have there been books that have shaped you? Maybe as a kid, as a grown-up? What books have captured your attention, your imagination, your heart? I hope you've had that experience of getting lost in a book. And as Christians, we're called people of the book. People of the book of the book is a, a phrase that's been used to describe the religions that look to the Hebrew scriptures as part of their faith tradition, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. 
And our doctrinal standards as a church of the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms, and that is it's a distillation of the scriptures. It's what we pastors sign on to say that we believe when we're ordained. And this is how the Westminster uh, standards start. This is in chapter one of the Confession of Faith. It says this. It's pretty small to read. I'll just read it for us. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. That is, uh, the idea here is looking at the ocean or a majestic mountain may help you sense that there is a God and that he is great, but it will not explicitly help you to know Jesus. It continues, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself, to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for more sure establishment of the comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. And it lists all the Bible, lists uh, books of the Bible there. And it says, all of these, all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then it says that we may be moved and induced to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. All that is to say, Christians in general, and us Presbyterians in particular, are people of the book. Of all the books we ought to love and be formed by and be captivated by, the book, the scriptures, tops them all. I love how Frederick Buechner describes the Bible. He says this, he said, it's a, a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murk, history and hysteria. Over the centuries, it's been become hopelessly associated with tub-thumping evangelism and dreary piety, with superannuated superstition and blue-nosed moralizing, with ecclesiastical authoritarianism and crippling literalism. Let them who try to start out at Genesis and work their way conscientiously to Revelation beware. And yet, just because it is a book about both the sublime and the unspeakable, it is a book also about life the way it really is. It's a book about people who at one and the same time can be both believing and unbelieving, innocent and guilty, crusaders and crooks, full of hope and full of despair. In other words, it's a book about us. It's also a book about God. If it is not about the God we believe in, then it's about the God we do not believe in. One way or another, the story we find in the Bible is our own story. Man has a way with words. Well, in Nehemiah 8, our passage for this morning, we see one of the most clear and inspiring stories of what it means and what it looks like to be people of the book. If you've been following along the last several weeks, you know what's been going on. We've been talking about Nehemiah. He was in exile, working as a cupbearer for a foreign king who hears about the state of the disrepair of the walls in Jerusalem. He takes a big risk to do something about it, leverages his influence and skills as an administrator and as a visionary to reconstruct the wall. He faced opposition. He overcame opposition. The walls have been rebuilt. And here we are at what we call chapter 8. Now, there's a new character on the scene here, and that's Ezra. There's a whole other book of the Bible named after him that's kind of another version of this story with some other stuff thrown in. So you can read Ezra to kind of get a, another glimpse as to what's going on here. It's, as an aside, every time I hear the name Ezra, I think of this bit by Norm MacDonald on SNL's weekend edition, um, or weekend update back in the 90s. He said, uh, number one on the college charts this summer was better than Ezra. Number two, Ezra. <laughs> You'll get it later. Uh, anyway, Ezra the scribe is on the scene 
and the people are all gathered to celebrate the completion of the wall. And then they call for Ezra to get out the book of the law in Moses and read it to them. Again, the wall is reconstructed and the people need to be re-instructed. So as people of the book from Nehemiah 8, we're going to see how to approach the book and then we'll see what the book does. First, how to approach this book. First of all, we approach the Bible attentively. Look at verse three. It says, from morning until midday, there was no brief scripture reading here, right? There's no morning until midday. They were in it for hours. It says the, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In school, I had to read this book called Night by Elie Wiesel for a class. Uh, I took the book. I walked across the street from our apartment at the time, uh, went to the coffee shop. I got my drink. I sat down and I am telling you, I started reading it and my eyes never left the page. It's not a very long book, so it's not that impressive, but I read it cover to cover and I never looked up until it was done. My coffee got cold. I was oblivious to everything else going on. It captured every bit of my, uh, my attention. You know, and uh, also when I, was, when I worked as a youth pastor and then as a program director at a camp, one of the most delightful experiences was hearing kids and adults at camp describe their encounters with God's word. Having set aside time to just go out and sit on a bench or under a tree and just give their attention to God's word without cell phones or distractions or any number of things that distract us at home. Just time and the scriptures, giving attention, being attentive to the book. Are we attentive to the scriptures? Are you attentive? Do you give your attention like that to God's word? Secondly, we see the people approached the book openly. Not only were they attentive to the scriptures, but it, remember it was the people's idea to have Ezra bring out the scriptures in the first place. Look at it in verse one. It says, the people told Ezra to bring the book of the law. They were open to hearing from God's law and they were eager to do so. Are you open to what this book has to say? Or are you closed off from hearing from God? There's a man named Sundar Singh. He was late 19th and 20th century Indian man. He was born into a Hindu family. He was educated in a Christian school. His mother died when he was a teen. And in anger, he burned the Bible page by page. And he was in a state of despair. At this point, he planned to commit suicide by throwing himself in front of a train. But he, he hollered in angry protest at the, at the sky saying, if there's a God, you better reveal yourself. Well, that night he had a vision of Jesus and he was converted. And because of this, he was rejected by his father and took off as a sadhu, an itinerant holy man, preaching the gospel of Jesus in India and eventually around the world. And on a visit teaching here in the United States, he said this. He said, in India, one feels everywhere, even through idols and altars, pilgrims and penitents, temples and tanks, that there is a desire for higher things. In the West, however, everything points to armed force, great power, and material things. The West is in danger of becoming more and more indifferent. And yet the West owes so many of its blessings to Christianity. Once when I was in the Himalayas, you know, once when I was in the Himalayas, he says, I was sitting on the bank of a river. I drew out of the water a drenched, beautiful, hard, round stone, and I smashed it. The inside was quite dry. The stone had been lying a long time in the water, but the water had not penetrated the stone. It is just like that with the Christian people of the West. They have for centuries been surrounded by Christianity, entirely steeped in its blessings, but the master's truth 
has not penetrated them. Are we too hard to be humbled? Are we too callous and anesthetized to have our hearts moved, too stone cold and closed to let the cool water of the gospel penetrate our hearts? Thirdly, we see the people approached the book enthusiastically. Half expected a gasp when I said the word enthusiasm, right, Presbyterians and all that. But we ought to approach the scriptures and our faith with enthusiasm, with our emotions involved, not cold and dispassionately. We need to let God's word affect us in our guts and our hearts. Look at what happened when Ezra read the scriptures in verse 6. It says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It says they were grieved, they were sorrow, they cried. The people heard God's word and they worshiped, lifting up their hands, demonstrating physically in their bodies the yearning for and submission to God. And then they bowed down, humbling themselves. They felt in response to God's word. I came across this old gospel hymn called My Mother's Bible that illustrates poignantly this idea. It's maybe a, a bit sappy, but the refrain goes like this. It says, blessed book, precious book, on thy dear old tear-stained leaves I love to look. Thou art sweet day by day as I walk the narrow way that leads at last to that bright home above. On thy dear old tear-stained leaves I love to look. Are there tear stains on the pages of your Bible? Are you approaching God's word with enthusiasm, with your heart engaged as well as your mind? And then fourthly, we're to approach the book submissively. That is, we submit to the scriptures, putting ourselves under it, submitting to what it teaches us about God, about ourselves, about our world, about reality. In verse six, the people answered, amen, amen. And the, the word amen means something like, Truly, or let it be so, as one friend told me, it means right on. It's a way of giving total agreement. When the people say amen, they're submitting to the truth, agreeing that it is true, bringing themselves in line with what's been read. Are you approaching the Bible submissively, submitting to its teaching, accepting its teaching as true and authoritative in your life? A 17th century preacher, William Bridge, likened the Bible to a looking glass, or what we would call a mirror. In a mirror, you see three things. You see the glass, you see your reflection, your image, and then you see all the things that are around you in the room. And Bridge says, there in the looking glass is God's scene, especially in Christ's scene, but there also you see yourself and your own dirty face. And also you see the creatures that are in the room with you and their emptiness and the emptiness of men and all the comforts and relations. That is, he says, without a mirror, we would have no vision of ourselves. Right? And my, while we might not relish seeing what we see in a mirror, especially if it's like first thing in the morning or you've been outside working in the yard, you know, covered in dirt or whatever, when we look in a mirror, we see. That's how we know there's mud on our face, various things need attention, right? We submit ourselves to the picture of reality being shown to us in the mirror. Right? It is better to see and know Right, rather than to not see and not know. The Bible, according to William Bridge, is a looking glass. It's a mirror, one in which we submit ourselves to God's truth. So we might ask, what does this looking glass of the Bible do? Right, that is, when we look in the mirror of the Bible, what happens? 
Well, we see at least three things here in Nehemiah 8. The scriptures bring sorrow, joy, and obedience. First, the scriptures bring sorrow. Reading, hearing the reading of God's word provokes the heartfelt response. Look at that last sentence of verse 9. It says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They approached the scriptures attentively, openly, enthusiastically, submissively. <coughs> and they realized how far short they had fallen from God's design for their community and for the world. They encountered the looking glass of the word, understood God's intention for them, and then when confronted with the reality, they wept. When we engage the scriptures, we see the beauty of the kingdom of God and the way it's supposed to be, we can't help but be provoked to sorrow. We see the way things are supposed to be and we butt right up against the reality of brokenness in our world and in our lives. And that's how we end up with tear-stained Bibles. The reading of scripture can provoke sorrow in us. The book of Hebrews describes the word of God as a double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes on to say that all creatures are naked and exposed to God in the word. Piercing, naked, exposed. Those are not the most pleasant or easy words to describe what the book does to us. When we're pierced and exposed, we see the brokenness in the world in our lives and we experience sorrow. Now, despite the seriousness of their sin and the brokenness of reality, the people were urged to dry their tears. As one commentator noted, scripture not only condemns sin, it immediately proclaims the remedy. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 and 11. It says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Do not be grieved. He says that twice. Don't be grieved. And it says the people made a great rejoicing. So not only does the book bring sorrow, but the book, the Bible brings joy. The people react to the reading of the word with weeping. And even while the tears are falling, Ezra is saying to them, don't mourn, don't weep, don't be grieved. Eat and drink, feast and share with those in need. Ezra quickly calls the people to celebration. It's one example of why we as a church want to celebrate well. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you always have to put on a happy face and always be glad and put together and perfect and things like that. There's still time and space for lament and sorrow. I mean, we just spent, what, like six weeks, seven weeks, 28 weeks in lamentations? It was a long time. So lamentation and sorrow is still very much a part of the Christian life. However, the default tenor, the normal MO for Christians is joy and celebration. Does your religion get you there? The command in scripture, we see it right there in verses 9 and 10. Don't mourn and weep, go and enjoy, feast, share. And then the famous line that any of us may be familiar with, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where does strength come from? It comes from the joy of the Lord. Don Carson has this great bit from a lecture that he did on Nehemiah 7 and 8. He says this, For although repentance and lamentation may lead to righteousness and integrity, they can merely be self-indulgent expressions of emotional catharsis and not lead to any strength at all. But there is profound spiritual strength, is there not, in people who really do delight in the Lord. Even when they're going through really difficult times, they are irrepressible profound spiritual strength 
in the joy of the Lord. And just because something is sacred doesn't mean it has to be gloomy. Holiness does not have to be somber. Somewhere along the line, the idea crept into many of us that to be really spiritual, you have to be super serious and austere and dour. It's actually one of the things I appreciate most about Pastor Josh is that he's not like that. Yes, he's a terrific communicator. Yes, he's super smart. Yes, he's a man of character, all of that stuff and much more. But this says maybe more about me than him, but I appreciate his willingness to be silly, uh, to be fun and ridiculous and sophomoric. I think it was Bono that said the right to be ridiculous is something I hold dear. Did you know that Pastor Josh has laugh mares? There's not even a word for this. It's made up because it doesn't even exist. It's the opposite of a nightmare where you wake up screaming. He wakes up laughing. (laughs) Whatever he is drinking, right, pour me a pint of that. Because the word should bring us joy. Christians should be people of joy. Jesus said as much, right? He said he came that we might have joy and to be full of it, to be overflowing with it. So we see here in Nehemiah 8, joy, celebration, feasting. Commentator Raymond Brown writes, it's a day of rejoicing, a time to celebrate God's mercy to them and his compassion for all. The holiday was to be marked by festival meals to which families and communities should invite their neighbors. And the best of food must be sent to those people who lack the basic necessities of life. Did you notice there that the celebration had an element of justice and equality involved in it. The celebration was for all people. Those who had food and drink were to share with others. Those in need were welcome at the table and were provided for. You know, I kind of envision this as an enacted version of Jesus's parable where everyone in the streets are invited into the feast. It's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet when all nations, tribes, languages, colors, socioeconomic statuses, or whatever, where all are welcomed in to the feast. In this way, we see in Nehemiah 8, we see justice and equity enacted through feasting and through celebration. Thirdly and lastly, the word brings obedience. What's happening here in verse 13 and following is a rediscovery of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. They realized through the hearing of God's word that they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing in regards to keeping this feast. And so they started doing what they were called to do. The Feast of Booths was a harvest festival, a celebration, the ingathering of the crops and of God's provision at the year's end. It was in the fall, and it was a memorial, a remembrance and reenactment of the wilderness when God made the people of Israel dwell in booths. And so they would build tents out of branches and leaves and sticks and camp out, enacting and remembering the past goodness of God. But they hadn't been doing it. And so here in Nehemiah 8, in response to the word, the tents go up in the city in the courtyards and the roofs all over, everybody's like, what is going on? Well, they started reenacting this. And there's a common complaint that goes around in churches. It usually takes the form of something like, I'm not getting fed. I need more depth, more meat. Now, the assumption in that statement is that depth equals more knowledge, right? more theology, more education. Now, I'm not going to denigrate education. I crammed a three years master's degree into 10 years. I liked it so much, I wanted to make a decade out of it. But so education is not bad. Theology is not bad. Education is not bad. It's just depth does not just mean knowing more theology. I think I may have mentioned this before, but when I was a kid, I loved the cartoon G.I. Joe. 
And at the end of every episode, they'd have some PSA about, you know, eating healthy or, or not locking yourself in a refrigerator when you're in the woods playing or something. That was a big deal in the 80s. Uh, and they'd always say, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And I kid you not, I thought about what the other half was for like 15 years. <laughs> so sometime like in my late 20s, I realized the other half of the battle is probably doing, right? <laughs> Knowing and then doing. Commentator Ray Brown says, perhaps the application of scripture is the hardest aspect of both personal Bible study and Christian preaching. But in both cases, personal reader and the public preacher must struggle hard to bridge the gap between what we have read and what we must do. Knowing is half the battle. The hard part is doing. Depth is not just knowing, but rather another way of looking at going deep in our faith is doing obedience. I was just reading this week in the Gospel of John 14, chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Depth is obedience to the word, abiding in love, complete joy. You know, we probably don't need to get fed anymore, right? We need more obedience. And we work that out in community, in community groups, in Bible studies, over the dinner table together, much like they did here in Nehemiah 8, back in verse 7. You can see Ezra kind of broke everybody up into small groups to work out what the word meant for their lives. The book brings obedience. You know, I grew up in a church that was Christ-haunted, to borrow a, a descriptor from Flannery O'Connor, and she used of the South. And what I don't recall is a love for the Bible. I was given a Bible a couple times over the years. I still have them. They're great mementos. But I don't ever recall being told that I could, and I was allowed to, to read it, or that I should read it. Now, to be fair, I may have just missed it because I was a kid and I wasn't paying much attention. But when I went off to live on my own outside of the house, a Bible wasn't on the packing list for life, and so I didn't take one with me. It never occurred to me that the Bible could be helpful uh, as I go off into adulthood. And I don't think I'd ever opened any of the Bibles that were given to me. So when I was struggling with my dad's death and being all alone, um, and a friend told me I could read the Bible, that it might be helpful for me, I had to take the bus down to Kmart to buy a Bible. Uh, and so armed with my Kmart Bible and a little booklet called My First 30 Quiet Times, which took me at least 90 days to do, I began to read the Bible and I tried to be attentive to it and open to what it was saying. And I was hooked. Of all the books I've ever read, there's only one that I read over and over and over. And even still, I wish I knew it better, that I read it more and that I meditated on it more. I heard a story this week of an older saint who was asked how he grew in his faith. That's, what's your discipleship plan? You know, thinking there would be some really in-depth description. He said what his discipleship method was, was it wasn't some curriculum or alpha class. He said he was told early on, and he tells other people, he says, take this, the Bible, take this, read it every day, do exactly what it says. I wouldn't want anyone to leave here without hearing that the Bible is for you. You can read it. You should read it. 
Use the readings and prayers in your Bible. It helps us. It's a way to get going. You just kind of jump in with the readings and prayers that are there in the bulletin. If you don't know where to start, you can start in the Gospel of John. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Psalms. Read it with friends. Read it with your kids at the dinner table with your roommates, whatever. Love this book. Cherish this book. Take it. Read it every day and do what it says. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Of course, we thank you that we can get a sense of who you are through the beauty of your creation, but you have specifically, clearly, beautifully revealed yourself to us in your son and in the scriptures. God, we confess that we are far too often hard-hearted, closed to the word and to the spirit. We fail to obey. Our hearts and our emotions are cold and closed off to experiencing the joy of the Lord. So, Father, have mercy on us. Grant us an appetite for your word. Help us truly believe and experience that it is more valuable than gold, that it's sweeter than honey, that it keeps us from sin. Show us how to live the life that is truly life. Indeed, let us as a church family love the scriptures. Let's read it together, discuss it among our groups and share it with one another. Use it for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. Form us by your word so that we might be helping and working for your kingdom to come here at New City and in the neighborhood as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of the word incarnate, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.